TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only twenty-five dollars a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile, get four iPhone 15s on us, and four lines for twenty-five bucks per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. What does the future hold for St. Louis and how do we get there? This is Nothing Impossible on KMOX. Welcome into our innovation conversation. Michael, Travis with you. And gosh, there's a lot to get to this week, including from Benson Hill, which is one of those companies that's gone from like zero to a thousand miles an hour, it seems like. <laughs> yeah, they're, uh, you know, what, what's cool about what they're working on now is they are engaging growers and farmers to test out new technologies and it's this nice symbiotic relationship of the farmer and the technology company or the innovation company working together yeah benson hill is based in creve core at our plant science innovation district we'll talk with them about the food system innovators program great way for them to get from the field feedback on their crop os technology and also travis i think they're going public soon we should ask them about that too yeah great more exciting news for the st louis region And then we're going to get into futurism, which we do generally on the show. That's what we talk about. But how do you think intentionally about it? Jeremy Newlick's going to help us figure that out. Yeah, the the folks at Big Wide Sky uh, have been doing this for a while. And Michael, you're right. Like We talk about this, what's next, what's now. That's what the show is all about. But let's bring some folks in and and help us explore what, what else futurism can be about. How do I get in that mindset to think about what's ahead and the best way to approach it? Jeremy has some great tips, so stay tuned for that. And then we're going to finish up the show with a little bit of my conversation with the rideshare guy. And if you do any of these gig economy services, you've got questions. You probably have frustrations. There's a lot going on in the industry. For instance, there was a report that uh, the charge that customers paid was not the charge that Uber drivers and others saw that the customer paid. And they're like, wait, I was supposed to get paid more for this. So we'll talk about that. (laughs) Yeah, sounds like a a pretty full show. Let's do a quick break, take care of business, and we'll come back and talk with uh, Benson Hill. St. Louis Innovation with Michael and Travis. Nothing impossible on KMOX. One of the big success stories in a big successful industry cluster for St. Louis, Travis, has been Benson Hill. Yeah, Benson Hill has been growing rapidly. I remember meeting uh, CEO Matt Crisp long, long ago when he was a tenant at the Helix Center. And then just about probably 12 to 18 months ago, they opened their new building out in in Bridge Park near the Danforth Center. And they're continuing to expand and make a difference in the ag tech sector. Absolutely. And a, a new piece of innovation from them, a new approach, is the Benson Hill Food System Innovators Program. And we're joined by Matt Crisp, the Chief Executive Officer of Benson Hill, to 
bring us in and let us know what this is all about. Thank you so much for joining us, Matt. Yeah, thank you guys for having me, uh, Michael and Travis. Really, really a pleasure to be here with you. So tell us about the FSI program. Sure. So the Food System Innovator Program, we, we just announced its launch yesterday. Uh, it's, a, it's a Benson Hill-sponsored uh, innovators program for uh, farmer uh, partners that, that we've engaged who are really at the bleeding edge of precision agriculture and who are, are I, I say, you know, progressive, innovative, forward-thinking farmers who are interested in, in, in using data and next-generation technologies to help inform grower practices and, and really ultimately reach past the farm gate um, and, and help the food system advance by tapping into some really rapidly growing end markets that are, that are really more consumer driven. Tell us a little bit about how this partnership would work. What, how, what, how do the growers and farmers engage? Sure. So when, when we, when we uh, in, enroll some uh, a farmer in this program, you know, we're engaging them uh, at every level of their practice to understand you know, how they're treating seed, how they're planting the seed, how, uh, you know, different environmental conditions are impacting not just yield and agronomic conditions, but very importantly, factors like nutrition density. Uh, and then moving, moving through the season, uh, imagine at the uh, tail end of the, uh, of, the, of, the, of the season and in the harvest period, you know, we're working with them to actually sample, you know, what comes off the field, what, what are the... Uh, um, you know, the relative yields and uh, protein concentrations of different uh, varieties of different beans and different uh, uh, environmental practices and, 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 you know, that have been grown uh, in different environments. So um, it, it, is a, it is a very, very high touch engagement uh, where we're learning with one another how we can maximize on-farm value creation. And how do the farmers feel about being part of two-way communication here? I feel like in the past, uh, across so many industries, it's just been, here's the company, here's what we produced, you're the customer, hope you enjoy it. But this, this two-way <laughs> yes, exchange, <laughs> what does that mean for them? What's, the, what's been their response to being able to have some real, real feedback into this? Yeah, well, I, it's, it's funny you ask because I got a chance to spend time with them yesterday, and we had a, a, a really amazing um, experience uh, through some sessions in the day and then went to the card cards game uh, in the evening. Um, and I got to ask that question to several folks. And what I'd tell you is that um, they're, they're providing really, really positive feedback about that bilateral uh, communication, but most importantly, the partnership. And, um, you know, I think <laughs> to your point in a commodity food system where the farmer is an important customer for a lot of these ag input companies and major seed companies, um, but they they have very very limited opportunity to reach past the farm gate and to tap in to some of the value that their crops have uh, as the foundation for certain end markets. For instance, um, in the human protein ingredients market, which is absolutely exploding with the advent of more plant based consumption, and uh, and and that's a, that's an exciting category. But it requires this partnership, this bilateral communication, this real-time feedback about how their crops are performing, um, you know, on a, on a, on a, uh, on a basis that again, opens up, you know, value capture opportunities um, in, in larger addressable end markets. And so it's a win-win. I mean, we're in the early innings, the feedback thus far has been really positive. Um, I, I, it's, I mean, it's a contagious excitement really um, that I got from hanging out with these guys yesterday and learning from them. And they, I think learned a lot from, 
our, our really incredible team as well. And, um, you know, we're just, we're, we're, we're super excited about what's to come. Well, Matt, you mentioned precision agriculture. And I, I just think back, I grew up in the ag heart, heartland of, of California in the Central Valley. And, uh, you know, my friends who were, who had families that were farmers, uh, they were thinking about agriculture, maybe from crop by crop. And then we evolved to acre by acre, row by row. And now it even <laughs> seems like it's plant by plant, if not leaf by leaf. You know, how has precision agriculture really evolved and Benson Hill really uh, playing a, a critical role in, in driving that innovation forward for these farmers? Yeah, that's a great example. And you're absolutely right. In, it, it's enabled first, I'd say, by, you know, a lot of the sensor technology, um, you know, we've got and, and, and you know, uh, robotics and, and other precision ag machinery and tools, you know, that have been commercialized uh, very rapidly over the last 10 to 15 years and have gotten to cost points that enable them to be really much more accessible to the to the broader community. And so when you when you can lever those kinds of tools um, what I th- what I though would say is is it becomes about data, and and I think you know ten or fifteen years ago I had we had one of the growers comment to me last evening. He said, you know, ten or fifteen years ago we were doing quote unquote precision agriculture, and I could see a really pretty picture, um, you know, with with lots of colors, but I could not make any decision with this data. It, it wasn't being translated into information on which I could act. And, and, his, and his comment was that what we've really been able to do um, thus far is, is inform, not just data dump, but inform using data um, and, a, and a lot of really cool you know, machine learning and AI-driven tools in our technology platform, CropOS, um, but, but, but help actually inform action. And um, it doesn't matter if it's row by row or plant by plant or leaf by leaf. If you can't use that to, you know, to change your practices or evolve your practices in a manner that creates value, then then you're really just wasting the grower's time. And and that's what that's what I've been, you know, really fortunate to hear such positive feedback on here in the last 24 hours from these guys directly and, you know, preceding that from our team as well. And Matt, I'd like to delve into this a little bit more and hear more about Crop OS and how it how it works. And it uses these technologies. And it seems like this, just in the last few years, has really become possible to employ machine learning and AI. Uh, but how does Crop OS tell a farmer how to get the best outcome, the best quality with their crops? How does it do that? And w- what is the interface like for them? Sure. So it's less about the interface per se. So, you know, there, there's a lot of precision ag tools and softwares that might allow, you know, the pretty picture, so to say, like we talked about. Um, what I'd say here is that CropOS is, is an engine that assimilates these data and, 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 uh, and stacks them in certain ways that do ultimately drive decisions. Um, but what, what decisions? So we look at seed treatments as an example um, you know, we're looking at how the crop is planted in what soil and what part of a field. We're evaluating how much you know, rainwater and when and it's in its uh, cycle and its growing cycle these plants are getting. Uh, and then we're going so far as, you know, when a harvest is conducted to take real time information off the field in different locations to understand what the optimal parameters were. Um, then, you know, you're looking, okay, at the, at the end of the day, it goes back to the seed. Our, our mission as a company is to, to help set the pace of innovation in food. And that really starts with a better seed that's better from the beginning. And so it, it, all, of these inf- all of these pieces of information are not just going to inform the production, 
uh, you know, on a season to season basis for commercial products we have, but it's going, it's going to our development teams and helping them optimize what recommendations we're going to come back to that farmer the next season with and what, you know, what planting approaches, what densities, what practices um, you can imagine too. And this is becoming really, really important. Uh, uh, you know, regenerative uh, agriculture practices, um, you know, no-till is, is an obvious one, but you've got uh, different kinds of biological approaches. You've got cover cropping. You know, these are all types of data that are going into the decision matrix that are helping us help growers help the food system. Well, Matt, I, I can't help but think, you know, we're, uh, we hear a lot about the impacts climate change has had on our food system. Uh, the global pandemic has had on our food system. Uh, just the changes in the economy has had on our food system. And I, I really appreciate that this is the Benson Hill Food System Innovators Program. Can you talk a little bit about the fragility of the global food system and why innovation in our food system is so critical for, uh, for the long-term sustainability of the planet? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we could talk, we could, we could have another separate session on this entirely, but I'll try to give you a couple good, you know, anecdotes, you know, number one, um, you know, agriculture constitutes a huge amount of, of carbon emissions. Uh, and, and if we want to decarbonize the economy, you've got to decarbonize agriculture. And it, it, there are some fundamental practices that exist, but what I think we, we have underappreciated is the effect of processing um, you know, and, and how much processed uh, food, you know, dominates a lot of what our consumption is. Now that processing is, is usually or can be, you know, a very environmentally intensive approach, it, it, very water intensive, very CO2 intensive. And so when I talk about, you know, using seed as a lever for innovation and going back to the beginning and creating a better seed, a large part of how we're trying to address this, this, this ultimate goal to decarbonize agriculture is creating a more whole ingredient, meaning you're growing what it is that you want in the field to begin with. We don't need to go through extra, very intensive processing steps to say, concentrate protein and nutrient density in order to make it a viable ingredient for a plant-based burger or an alternative meat product. Um, and so it, it, while it all does start at the field and farmers play a, an enormously instrumental role in helping decarbonize that, the seed as a lever, the, the natural genetic diversity of plants as a lever for innovation, we think, is the most powerful opportunity that we're yet to harness. When you talk about the fragility of the supply chain, I think that's an, it's another really important point, especially as we hopefully are emerging here from our, from our pandemic. Um, we, we got a chance to see the fragility of global supply chains and trade routes, you know, when, when we ran into, into COVID last year. And what we're hearing from customers a great deal in the last six to 12 months is, where did this food come from? Where did this crop come from? Where did these ingredients come from? Was it produced in the United States, in the Midwest? Um, there's a benefit to that, right? I mean, if we can produce across you know, the six states that these food system innovators are in, Ben Snell's growing in more than a dozen states, uh, you know, for soy and yellow pea. If we can produce domestically, we actually reduce the, the supply chain risk that a lot of these consumer packaged goods and food companies have. So it's becoming a, a topic of conversation in a manner um, over the last six to 12 months that in, in a way that I've never seen. Uh, and I think it, I think we're really just getting started and it, it creates more opportunity for the U.S. farmer. 
We're talking with Matt Crisp, the CEO of Benson Hill, which is based at the Plant Science District in Creve Core here in the St. Louis region, part of our industry cluster of ag tech companies. And I'm curious about the situation right now when it comes to, because we see even fast food restaurants offering plant-based items now. So is there already a stress? Are farmers already seeing more demand for their product? What, what's happening right now? Right. Well, the vast majority, I'm going to use soybeans, you know, the vast majority of soybeans that are produced in the United States actually go to animal feed. Um, and, and so uh, a grower may not know um, as, they, as they grow beans and put them into the commodity system, whether it's going to end up in a soy protein concentrate that ends up in a plant-based sausage or, or chicken nugget or plant-based burger, or if it's going to go towards an animal feed product. Um, and, and, you know, frankly, that's the way the commodity system is designed is to achieve max scale. Um, we are really, really good at producing cheap calories. What this Food System Innovators Program is doing is it's, it's helping, again, reach past that farm gate and to enable the farmer to understand more intimately where its crop, you know, where their crop is going, for what purpose, in what market. And those markets, like you are suggesting in the quick service arena, for instance, are absolutely exploding with interest around plant-based. And so that, that, that demand, that growth, which is, you know, depending on who you ask, somewhere between 25 and 50% year over year and uh, projected to continue to grow at a, at a pretty incredible pace, is opening up opportunities for innovative, forward-thinking growers to get involved and to participate in some of that downstream value. Uh, in a way that we we're you know I'm, I'm not convinced that they've had before, and that's what they're telling us is that they're really excited to embrace innovation, to to embrace in many respects a new way of thinking, um, and and in and in a lot of respects, um, you know, be the early adopters for more decommoditization of the system. Well, Matt, before we let you go, you were talking about uh, you know crops expanding into new markets. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about Benson Hill expanding into, forgive the uh, bad pun, the stock market, uh, becoming li- uh, publicly listed on the New York Stock Exchange in the near future. Tell us a little bit about that evolution of, of Benson Hill before we wrap up. Sure, happy to. Um, so you know, we, we as a board la- late last year uh, looked at the opportunity we had to continue to scale the business uh, to continue to commercialize some really, really innovative products over the next several months and years, including our ultra high protein soy. And, um, and, and as a result, we made the decision that, that we should, you know, explore more proactively the opportunity to form additional capital in the public markets. And, and that's exactly how we view, um, this, this, uh, merger transaction into a publicly traded company, sometimes called a SPAC IPO. Uh, which has been, you know, largely popularized in the in the last year, um, but an IPO nonetheless to go public uh, this quarter, um, and uh, and and form, you know, a large amount of additional capital to help fuel our growth. Um, we we when that transaction closes, will will be uh, uh, BHIL on the New York Stock Exchange, um, and and currently listed on the New York Stock Exchange as Star Peak Two, our partner, um, traded under STPC. So, so we're, we're, we're very excited to have them as a partner, to have sustainability as a core alignment and focus um, to be able to, to meet the needs uh, of, our, of our farmer community and, and our ultimate customers. And most importantly, uh, to use the fuel that the public markets will, will provide us 
um, you know, to, to scale the business and indeed link more, more appropriately the farmer with the consumer. So soon to come on the New York Stock Exchange, BHIL, and of course, Benson Hill already an anchor of the St. Louis AgTech cluster here and launching the Food System Innovators Program, which is going to give Benson Hill insights to improve their crop OS technology. Great talking with you, Matt Crisp, the CEO of Benson Hill. Thank you, guys. Stay tuned for more Nothing Impossible right after this on KMOX. St. Louis Innovation with Michael and Travis. Nothing Impossible on KMOX. Michael, we talk about on this show what's now and what's next, but we don't really... I mean, we're good at that, but I thought it would be cool to bring in a futurist, those roles really do exist, uh, to talk a little bit more about not just what's now and what's next, but you know, some things that can help other people learn how to be futurists. So we're joined by uh, Jeremy Newlick. He is a futurist with the agency and company Big Wide Sky here in the St. Louis region. Jeremy, thanks for joining us. Thank you both for having me. It's an incredible show, and uh, I think you both are just futurists by by your posture and proxy. So for whatever that's worth, you can get out the futurism anointing oil and, and know that you both are futurists. So you do an excellent job. I just yeah. had business cards printed. I should have put that on there. Yeah. Just a little yeah, late. For, for next time. A little more foresight next time into the business cards. Right. Well, Jeremy, right. what what is a futurist? Tell us, give us a little bit of an introduction into this, this mindset. What is a futurist? Sure, sure. I um I think a good place uh, to start with it, um, and, uh, of course, like I get annoyed when people uh, define something by what it's not, but I think it's fair <laughs> to say that uh, it's probably good just for clarifying that, um, you know, futurist is not necessarily about predicting the future, uh, nor is it necessarily about like, you know, the following pieces of technology and how they're going to disrupt all of our lives or anything like that. I think there are certainly... Uh, a lot of folks uh, who have uh, some ideas about that, how our worlds could be disrupted. Um, uh, but, you know, a, a lot, a good number of people who, who have the title uh, futurist uh, have done some study uh, in a discipline called strategic foresight. It's a relatively new um, academic discipline. In fact, a lot of universities don't even know where to put it. You know, they'll put it under technology sometimes, and sometimes it's under design. Uh, but really, it's, a, it's an interdisciplinary uh, look at how can people uh, look at, interpret, and understand uh, change in a systematic way, uh, such that uh, they can begin to take agency in cultivating the kinds of futures they'd like to have, uh, and to sort of guard against futures that maybe they'd rather not uh, see come about. Um, so, you know, a lot of this also is just, uh, and, and where the, I think the misconceptions come from regarding prediction come from our, our sort of default setting uh, for how we interpret the future in general. So most of the time we believe the future to be this linear continuation of what's happening right now. You know, uh, what's happening right now is going to continue happening as it is. You all are coming up on your your eighth anniversary. And who would have predicted, you know, eight years ago, of course, that the two of you would be having such a wonderful show eight years later and really delving into to so many depths, as, as you were even telling me before we got started, you know. And so the future is probably better understood as sort of this topography. It's like a, a possibility space. There are many things uh, that could be 
And there's also more than just one actor, right? So there are multiple futures. Uh, and so what a futurist is ostensibly supposed to do to help you is to uh, help you, uh, in especially in times of change, uh, in times of tremendous change or in times of crisis, to make sense of all of that change that's occurring and, and what could be. Let's take a look and uh, explore uh, some worlds. Uh, it's both uh, analytical and imaginative work that's done to characterize those futures uh, to, to come to a better understanding of what you really want in the present day. Well, uh, Long answer. It, no, it's, it's great. Uh, you know, I was, I was at first thinking this uh, sounds very much like the Marvel multiverse. Uh, it does. <laughs> a number of storylines, but I wanted to focus on something you, you mentioned, and that was strategic foresight. And, you know, as Michael and I interview innovators on a, on a weekly basis, uh, I mean, I would assume that innovators probably knowingly or unknowingly practice some level of strategic foresight, right? So that they oh, can, so, right. so that they right. can, you know, not necessarily from a prediction standpoint, but trying to create the, the future that is, you know, preferred. I think you're absolutely right. You know, I think that some of the work, the, the, what even drew me into it, uh, this work is actually, it's exactly what you're saying. You know, um, my background's in, in communications and, and journalism and actually interviewing folks like you, Travis. So, um, you know, when I, when I started finding so many people who seem to have uh, this, this ability and like, you know, uh, to, to think about multiple uh, sorts of futures, but in a way that's, that's extremely, uh, you know, sort of condensed, it's like they're jumping through multiple worlds and possibilities uh, and it, it sort of gave them a posture where they could see uh, they could see things that other people wouldn't be willing to see, or uh, people who uh, just didn't have that either natural predisposition or hadn't been trained in how to do any of that kind of work. Um, so either through, I think you're right in that people who we've often, uh, you know, characterized as being innovative or visionary, I think are practitioners of of the kinds of systematic frameworks that are laid bare in strategic foresight. I think it's a way to sort of uh, democratize, you know, that kind of thinking that, that everyone has an ability, uh, human beings all have an ability to think about um, possible worlds beyond their present day circumstances. Those are, that's, that's innate to our species. Jeremy, how do you sort through or figure out what criteria? I mean, you mentioned some of this is analytical, some of it is imaginative, especially if one person is one brain or the other. How do you sort through and determine which factors are the important ones to consider and which ones are just noise when you're thinking about the future? That's, that's, that's a really good question. I, uh, th so depending on sort of the level of challenge or you know, what problem you're trying to solve, I think that uh, that dictates greatly how much of that level of analysis you probably need to perform. But if you take, uh, for instance, um, you know, you want to think about the the future of of something you care deeply about. Uh, and so, if uh, you know, for, for you, Michael, it might be you know the future of of broadcast. It might be the future of uh, of audio media or something like this, right? And you already have uh, inside of you. Uh, some images of that. You already have um, some ideas about that. If you were to project yourself 10 years in the future, you likely have some images in your mind uh, of the kinds of futures you could find yourself in. Um, but you also would be great at mapping out a system of 
what are what are all of the components uh, you know that are connected to that kind of future? So let's think about like what's happening socially, you know, steep analysis type stuff, right? What are, what are some of the technological advancements? What's happening in the economy? You can sort of you know try to sort through uh, what you believe, uh, and then what you can do. I mean, there are there are people and there are firms that that will just perform a data analysis for you and tell you what are sort of drivers of change inside of each of those categories as it relates to the thing you're futuring. So if you're futuring, like I said, for instance, um, just, uh, uh, you know, audible media, uh, what is, uh, what are the, all of the things that are connected to that map that system and then come up with what are the most disruptive potential places but even on top of that, and probably what's more important is really building out and creating an immersive different reality based on, on those drivers of change. So if in 10 years from now you have in your mind uh, some potential kind of world you could live in, even if it's not one that you'd want, uh, the sort of the power of foresight and where it really brings to bear the combination of being analytical and imaginative is you live into that world and you sort of get to lean into the complexity of living into that world, even if it's one you wouldn't want, uh, because uh, it uh, sort of emancipates you from having to be right about the future. You just, you, you get to do some of the, the kinds of thinking uh, and unlock the kinds of thinking that will show you what you really care about in the present day. Well, speaking of leaning into a world in which we may not want, uh, I think for the last 18 to 20 months uh, in the midst of the COVID pandemic, uh, which, you know, we may not have been able to see this coming, but we, as, as, as humans living in a, on the planet, we have all, uh, you know, this has been our reality for the last 18 months. And with mm -hmm. the Delta variant, who knows what the future and how much longer this is going to go. Uh, but this is, I mean, this is not only impacting how people can think creatively and think about and, and imagine the future. This is also, and Michael and I have talked about that, this is also impacting business and business leaders' abilities to think about what the future looks like for their firms uh, in, a, in a variety of sectors. Uh, you do this day by day at Big Wide Sky, uh, but one of, your, one of the things you have coming up is this, uh, this seminar, this webinar called Your Future Now, where you're, you're helping other people you know, gain these skills so they can, they can look at these uncertain times with maybe a fresh set of eyes. Tell us a little bit about what that's going to entail. Sure. Well, uh, yeah, and thank you for, for mentioning it. Um, there was a fun way we were actually even reading the name of it, which was like your future now. Because uh, I think a lot of people, uh, you know, if you read that a, a little bit closer together, it actually sounds like um, a lot of folks over the last few saying 18 months or so, we've been contending with a kind of future that felt like it was pushed upon us. You know, it was like all of this change. Uh, and it seemed coming seemingly out of nowhere uh, and completely unpredictable and unforeseen, you know, sort of circumstances. How uh, how are we supposed to interpret that or understand it? Um, I think a lot of people are just feeling that at a visceral level, even if not, you know, intellectually, they, they definitely understand what that's like. Uh, what we're hoping for on August 12th is actually some fun uh, that we have a game uh, that we're looking to play with with folks uh, virtually in which we are going to construct artifacts from possible futures. Um, because one of, uh, of the tools and foresight that is most useful, particularly when a group of people may be feeling uh, sort of like you're casting more negative images of the future, or maybe you're a little more doubtful of the future. Uh, and at the same time, maybe you feel a little powerless, like maybe you feel at least a little less agency in shaping your future. Um, 
then you know typically you know something that you can do to uh, leverage some of the power of futures thinking is to generate new artifacts from potential futures. So an example of that could be, you know, you could, um, you could be uh, futuring uh, like whatever matters to you the most, your industry, and you could start thinking through different archetypes uh, of different kinds of futures. What might be happening? Who would you be in those futures? Uh, and what might you find there? And how would you present it? Uh, to someone in the present day. Um, and and by doing that kind of work, again, you can begin to have conversations you wouldn't otherwise have. You can begin to reframe what seems like an impossible uh, you know, set of circumstances into something where there is actually a possibility space on the other side of it. Well, Jeremy, just about 90 seconds left, but I want to ask this question because I think we're grappling with it in society a little bit, especially when it comes to these tech companies. You mentioned disruption in the future. Uh, and how do we determine if if this particular disruption, whatever we're talking about, is good or if it could ruin something good? Uh, disruption, could it be good? Could it be bad? How do we figure that out? Yeah, it's a really good question. I, I think that... Um it's it's difficult. So so trying to put a layer uh, on top of a change that's normative, in other words, like trying to assign good or bad to a disruption uh, is uh, is natural. I think it's a natural curiosity. I think that where I would challenge folks is, you know, something as simple as uh, thinking through first, second and and third level uh, sorts of change that could happen. So think of it just like you were telling a story. So if you determine that there's a disruption of some kind with tech, like, oh, AI is taking over XYZ, whatever it is. Well, what's the first order implication of that? What's something that could change? Uh, and then think about all the possible ways it could. If you start to lean into all of the possible ways before you decide to assign whether the disruption's good or bad, you can usually come to uh, a different, just a different mindset about it. You know, a, a more, a more welcoming, uh, a more understanding, a more empathetic uh, understanding of even what your future could be. So, you know, I would say before assigning good or bad to disruption, um, even thinking through first, the second, third order implications of of what could be, uh, helps you to determine what you really would want. All right. Well, Jeremy, Nolan, the uh, futurist from Big Wide Sky, you can learn more about Big Wide Sky, both their brains and their hearts by visiting big, bigwidesky.com. And if people wanted to learn more about your future now or your future now, uh, where can they learn about that? They can go to that same address, bigwidesky.com. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's advertised on the website. Stay tuned. We've got more Nothing Impossible. The Rideshare Guy is up next on KMOX. Now back to Nothing Impossible on the Voice of St. Louis, KMOX. Let's bring in Sergio Avidian, who's a senior contributor for The Rideshare Guy. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello, Michael. So uh, first of all, you know, I've encountered this, and I think a lot of people have lately, the shortage of drivers for services like Lyft and Uber. Is that is that still a problem? Are people still having to wait for a long time to get a ride? 100% correct. Um, there has been a shortage of drivers you know, I've seen stories, especially over the last year, but really longer than that, about the changing algorithms, the way that uh, these services decide who gets what jobs. Uh, to be honest with you, Michael, for the first time in a year and a half almost, I drove last week. Why did I do that? Obviously, I'm vaccinated. You have some sort of protection. However, 
The reason I did that is because Uber, specifically Uber, is putting out some absolutely phenomenal, ridiculous bonuses for their drivers at the moment, just to entice drivers who are on the platform, but they're choosing not to drive back onto the platform because there is a tremendous shortage of drivers. And um, they offered me, which is I have never, I've been doing this for about five, six years. And as a driver over four years on and off on a part-time basis, um, they offered me $120 bonus if I just did three rides, irregardless of their length or duration, $120 extra on top of what I was going to get paid on those three rides. And they don't have to be consecutive. It, could, it just has to be three individual rides in a 24-hour basis. So my hourly for those for those three rides, because I did three quick short rides, um, it came up to about $150 an hour. Now, that's just in my specific case in Los Angeles. Um, I can't speak about it for other states and other major cities, but the bonuses that are out there are the highest I've seen since I started driving, maybe four or five years ago. What is happening with uh, the discrepancy between what the passenger is paying and what the driver is receiving. You know, that has been a sticking point for a long, long time, even before the pandemic. On some rides, Uber or Lyft would take 40% of the gross proceeds from the passenger and pay the rest to the driver, sometimes 50%, sometimes it got as high as 60%, and sometimes down to 25%. Uh, which is when the when the business started, they were only supposed to take 25%. There was a cap at 25%. The reason they're doing that, you know, is look, when Uber puts out bonuses, like I described, they have to make, get that money from somewhere. Somebody has to pay for that. Otherwise, it's a total loss for Uber and Lyft. And the same thing is happening in the delivery side of the business. Not, not to that extent, but uh, it, it's there. So the... Their hold rate, as we call it, that's the difference between what the driver gets and what the passenger pays, has to be higher. Otherwise, Uber is net losing money on each single ride that they do because of these bonuses. Well, that industry seems like it's always changing. And if it changes anymore, we'll talk about it here, maybe even next week on Nothing Impossible. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively sports. Back clock at four. Doncic. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. Yes, and even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to tunein.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay. Plus taxes and fees. Phone fees 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge apply. Ctmobile.com. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. For a 
Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.